Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. Join Keenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Hey, 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 everyone. It's Keenan Skelly, the host of The National Blast. We have a very exciting guest today, Thomas Pace from NetRise. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what our topic is for today? Sure. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of a cybersecurity startup. Uh, called NetRise, and we are a firmware analysis company that basically provides visibility and risk identification to a class of devices that historically has had none. So devices such as IoT, industrial control systems, medical devices, embedded systems and vehicles, satellites and telecommunications equipment. So what we're going to be talking about today is the language, some of the language that has appeared in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, that basically says um, the government will be unable to procure certain software device and or systems uh, if any of those uh, products have uh, CVEs in them, which are more commonly known as basically vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities. Can I just go ahead and laugh out loud for a second because that's never going to (laughs) happen. I mean, honestly, what were they thinking with this? I mean, you can't guarantee that there's never going to be a CBE. So how are they going to get around the reality of there's going to be CBEs? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say we're not going to buy any software that doesn't have any CBEs at procurement time. That's that's one thing to say. Uh, even that I think is generally accepted to be impossible. Uh, But making the statement that the software or any whatever else you will procure will never have vulnerabilities is 100% impossible. Um, Like that's just, that's just never going to happen. As long as human beings are writing software and human beings remain the infallible creatures that we are, um, software vulnerabilities will continue to exist. So, I mean, I think the, uh, I think the motivation and the, um, you know, the, the thought process is, is, is a, is an admirable one, but the, the implementation of it is, uh, you know, less than good. Uh, the, the saying that pops to mind when I hear something like this is, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, (laughs) you know, the intentions here are positive, like be sure, like, it'd be wonderful if the federal government, um, only procured things without vulnerabilities. Hilariously enough, the federal government is also the same institution that probably by far is levered, is using the most legacy everything. Yep. Um, you know, there's there's legendary contracts between the federal government and like Microsoft and things like that, where they're asking Microsoft to still patch things for like Windows XP and things like that. Yet that same entity is going to make the bold claim that we can only buy things with no vulnerabilities. And it's just like that 
that so, something is off. Sure, you know, I think I think you're right about the intention, right? I think the intention seems to be that we want you to pay more attention to secure coding. We want you to pay more attention to how the product is being built. And that's all fine and dandy, but you should have just said that instead of imposing, you know, this, this um, regulation or imposing this, this thing that says this has to happen this way, because there's already enough issues in the procurement process for pretty much anything that has to do with technology. So adding this little piece onto it is just going to continue to back up the procurement you know, process for literally everything. How do they get around that? I mean, what is the operational fix to to make this somehow work? Oh, I mean, I mean, there's only one way to fix this, and that's by changing the language. Um, that language cannot remain. Otherwise, the federal government will not buy anything. So that's it. Like, there's no way to operationalize that um, that that I'm aware of. So there's just not give give if you give them all the money in the world, which by the way they have. Um, they, they, they can't do this, um, uh, properly. What, what is a much more reasonable approach, which they also kind of came up with. See, this is the crazy thing about the government to me. On one hand, they are by far the most, they are driving, in my opinion, one of the most impactful, relevant, and even practical software security initiatives ever around software bill of materials. Oh Yeah. Amazing idea. Great. Wonderful. It's like the only thing that like, I am not a fan of public private partnerships when it comes to the federal government. I've worked in the federal government way too long. Um, but the SBOM initiative is a total exception to that rule. I mean, the, the like actual things are happening. It is making private industry catch up. In a, I mean, it's, it's great. They, they do that. And then at the same time, they're like, yep, no CVEs and software. And it's just like, but that's two very different areas of government. And you have to, having worked for yep. the federal government, you know how that works, right? I mean, DHS is getting tons of money to work on stuff. And even though they're in, like, I like to say, startup mode, they are targeting very specific things. But DOD is its own animal. And even within DOD, you know, the different services are their own animal. And when you try to put out a blanket, you know, federal government or just government, it just doesn't, it, there is no such thing. Right. <laughs> it, it doesn't exist. It's it's interesting to see how the different agencies are dealing with kind of the same ish problems in this in different ways. Right. So to your point with SBOM, SBOM is amazing. Alan Friedman and his shop are just doing wonderful, great things. Do you really yeah. think I'm, I'm curious, do you think that the DOD would be able to institute or put in effect anything like that? Uh, you mean with SBOM? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, SBOM is, there's, there's, there is a, you know, it's funny when we started NetRise, SBOM was like a thing, but it wasn't like anywhere near what it is now. Uh, SBOM has been an amazing tailwind for us, frankly, which is, which is wonderful. And I'm very appreciative of that, but uh, there's going to, there's a, there's a ton of vendors doing that now. And there's going to be even more, especially with everything going on here. Um, I don't think SBOM is as, it's definitely not as complicated as a lot of people make it to be. Um, but going after the legacy stuff is always going to be the problem with SBOM and the government has more of that than anybody. So there, there is like that challenge, but here's what's, here is what is a hundred percent possible. Everyone just needs to do read like when they want to do it. We can say, Hey, listen, we're drawing a line in the sand as of this date and that date moving forward, we need SBOMs for things. 
you can do that. That's not, that doesn't require like rocket surgery, you know, um, going back and saying, but we also need S bombs for everything at this point, moving backwards, forget it. Um, it's best effort. That's what it's going to have to be. And then as you replace those legacy systems, they need to fall in line with wherever you drew that line in the sand. And that's just how there's no other way to really do it. Um, so unless like some magical piece of technology comes around that can like do that. But, uh, and there is some ways to do it, but it's not even about the technology. It's about like the operationalization and implementation of that technology yeah. to go back and deal with those legacy systems is the challenging part. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that, uh, and, and you can, what SBOM gives you is the ability to even understand how unreasonable the vulnerability statement is in the NDAA, right? Otherwise, how, you can't even, here's a, here's a great example. You know, we've, we've dealt with multiple manufacturers uh, that don't even have a single uh, CPE for any of the devices they make. Meaning, if you look them up in the National Vulnerability Database, you'll find nothing. And mm -hmm. since there's no CPE, there's also what? There's no CVEs. Yep. So are we going to actually assume that there are no vulnerabilities for any equipment that that device manufacturer makes? You can make that assumption. You will just be wrong. You're uh, wrong. <laughs> so that's what SPOM gives you is finally that like visibility into everything. And so when we evaluate like the firmware of one of these devices that's not in the NVD at all, unsurprisingly, we find thousands and thousands of CVEs. So... And then that that opens up an entirely new conversation around like, well, whose responsibility is this to inform them, right? Because this isn't a this is where people are like, oh, is this responsible disclosure? In my opinion, it's not. These aren't new vulnerabilities. If these are all, if we found thousands of zero days, one hundred percent, that yeah. you have to follow a responsible disclosure process. That's not what this is. These are vulnerabilities from ten years ago. And if you're going to say, hey, vendor you're responsible for managing that with the manufacturer. Really? I think the manufacturer is responsible for maybe not using a software component from 10 years ago. That's what I think. Um, but that's a much different conversation. But uh, that's... that's <laughs> no, I'm, I'm smiling and laughing in the background here because th that conversation is, you're right, it's a whole different conversation, but oh my, it ties into this. And that's, a, you know, when we talk about SBOM and it's been a popular topic lately, um, it literally ties into everything. It ties into every topic that everybody is kind of dealing with right now in terms of cybersecurity. And so whenever, whatever I mentioned SBOM on the, on the show and everybody gets into their, their view of it, it it's, it's wildly um, not entertaining, but it's, everybody's so passionate about it because it's part of everything. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just, I'm smiling because it's, it just continues to be true. Um, so for the NDAA, you know, how does the government go back and change language in the NDAA? Do they do amendments? Do they do strikes? How does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. Uh, I have no idea either. This is something I probably should know, but I have no idea. Here's what I do know. They get changed all the time. Um, so I, I don't I don't know exactly how, what that process looks like and what the back and forth looks like. Um, but uh it's, it's fair. I mean, they always also seem to get approved at like the 11th hour, you know, 
Um, oh, yeah. So, so I've been on that part of the process where you're helping to define what the language is going to be for the NDAA. And, and it goes back and forth between your office and their office a hundred million times. And it's only like that last word that has to be changed literally two minutes before the deadline. But I've actually never... I've never seen any of those that I've worked on actually have to be changed. So I'm, I'm very curious now. I'm going to have to do a whole session on what that process is. Yeah, no, that, it'll be interesting. And I mean, this, you know, this language in, in this NDA in particular, just like, I mean, it turned into a meme like overnight, uh, you know, like Twitter kind of exploded with it and you see it all over LinkedIn and all over the place. So for that language not to change would just be like, shocking um yeah. i mean the only thing more shocking would be the expectation that they're actually going to follow the language so right um, but this happens um a lot kind of with the the government you know when they come out with programs with the best intents you know like cmmc which started as one thing and had great you know aspirations of changing the world and blah, 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 blah. But then when you staff that office with three people and, you know, you roll out these massive kind of requirements and small business owners start businesses around the concept of that idea and trying to enforce it. And then you just say, oh, well, it didn't work out. (laughs) This is one of the areas where the federal government needs to check themselves and rein in when they start these kind of massive um, ideologies that are going to change everything um, and really just, yeah, just check themselves. Right. We yeah, start- I, mean, I, I, I certainly agree. I mean, I, I was CMMC never made sense to me from day one, but we have a million like NIST standards already in place. Why are we creating some like arbitrary new thing? Um, so I don't know, but yeah, the, I think there's so much like with CISA and what CISA's new role in the government seems to be. Um, I think they have a lot of great people there. They're actually making decisions, moving the ball forward and actually putting together like practical stuff. I do think sometimes they like, they like stretch a bit too far. Like I know, I think a bunch of people are not super thrilled about some of the like recommended requirement stuff they just came out with. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think what they don't always realize is people are going to take that stuff like real serious and uh, run with it and <laughs> run with it. And that's not like, it should just be like FYI guys, not, this isn't re- this, just like, Hey, here you go. Um, like with the executive order, they were like, we should probably use multi-factor authentication. Great. Thank you. Like not like these like prescriptive things, which just makes just creates a lot of work for people. That's actually uh, a really great point. You know, the whole MFA campaign that's come out of CISA, uh, it's not its not a regulation. It's just, hey, this is a good thing to do. And really solid marketing behind it to really push that message out in, in the cool, cool ways, you know, um, add rock and roll, add all that kind of stuff to it so that it's accessible to everyone without feeling like uh, you're getting a smackdown. Yeah, I don't, I don't know... Because SBOM is going to be like mandated, whatever word you want to call it. I don't know what the actual enforcement mechanism is going to be. If it's part of the NDAA, if it's like going to be a new like NIST, whatever it is. Um, but MFA was part of that same executive order, right? Like it was like SBOM, MFA, you know, 
DHS already has the continuous continuous diagnostic and monitoring yep. thing. Um, so there's a lot of there's we know how to like do this. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of going and doing it. Um, so yeah, I think that leveraging leveraging uh, the the good work that that CIS is doing and and keeping it focused around like here are the here are the things that are practical that people you know can actually do is is kind of the way forward and that around the s bomb stuff is going to be um a, a key point for this specific language in the ndaa i think that's so crazy if you could i always ask everybody this if you could talk to congress right now and, and talk to them about the ndaa um, what would you ask them to do just strike it totally or if strike it totally, then what should it be? What should the option be? What should the language be? Here's the thing. If you look at the National Vulnerability Database in its current form, at least, and which is what people are going to be using to determine if there are CVEs or not, um, that doesn't work. Uh, the NVD has a million problems. Um, so point being, if you're going to rely on data you get from the National Vulnerability Database to make decisions, you're going to make bad decisions. Uh, do I think we should get rid of the NVD? Absolutely not. Do I? Do we leverage the NVD at NetRise? Yep. But do we enrich the NVD and fix all the broken parts about it to make the data you get out of it 100 times better so that you can prioritize vulnerabilities based on things that matter and not things like critical, high, medium, and low with CVSS scores that are about as arbitrary as the weather? Yes, we do. Um, so that's the problem. Because you can't even say, like even saying the federal government will not buy anything that has any critical vulnerabilities. That's That doesn't make any sense either. Is that better than saying nothing? I guess so. But like not really, because now you're going to have people patching or like caring about critical vulnerabilities. And we've proven this a million times. We will look at a device or something and it will have, let's say it has a thousand vulnerabilities. Let's say a hundred of them are critical, but there's no exploits available for those hundred critical vulnerabilities, but there's 10 exploits available for three and high, four and medium yep. and three and low. Well, which ones should you care about? The critical vulnerabilities with no exploits or the medium vulnerabilities with exploits? Yep. The ones with exploits probably is a better place to start. Yep. Um, but that's what gets lost here, right? And the NVD doesn't have that third-party threat intelligence coming in to enrich that data. Yep. So how do you properly prioritize? So what I would say, what matters and what you can do is say, listen, we're not going to, we're not going to make a decision on like the risk of something that you should choose to accept or not, that should be based on the individual like um, uh, like business owners, or in this case, like whether it's the Marine Corps or like NASA or like whoever it is, they understand their threat model and they understand their attack surface and need to make the decisions based on what they are seeing. The idea that Congress is the one who understands the threat model better than the end user is crazy. Um, but here's what you should mandate. You should mandate visibility. And you should mandate, listen, we're not going to tell you what to do with the information, but you have to have the information to make a decision. And that's what SBOM accomplishes, right? It's or not even, about like, 
Yeah, even as a part of that setting out, like you have a certain amount of time to deal with critical ones and they don't necessarily have to be your top priority if there's no exploits. But if you have exploits, those have to be taken care of in a certain amount of time, period, the end. Um, Because if patching is all you're trying to get to, if, if really pushing patching is the purpose of this, then do that in a way that people are actually gonna understand instead of, you know, bringing the hammer down and saying, you must do this this way. That's right, because patching is, you know, especially in the government is a much more problematic thing. And, and even more so when you're talking about like devices and- Critical hey, infrastructure, oh my gosh, yeah. Critical infrastructure, like where availability reigns supreme, confidentiality and integrity are not the priorities. And by the way, they shouldn't be. Um, like, does it does it matter as much that a piece of firmware on the Joint Strike Fighter has like this vulnerability when the the ability for you to access that vulnerability means that you'd have to be like on the jet? Um, probably doesn't matter as much. What are we going to do? Are we going to delay the production of the most advanced military aircraft in the world because there's a critical vulnerability in an oxygen sensor? We could. Like, you can do that. Um, do I think that makes sense? Probably not. Um, so those are the things that you have to think about whenever you put these like blanket statements into these kind of documents is like, how does this impact the warfighter and the person that's actually responsible for actually, um, you know, defending the country from things and not just voting on things. Ooh, it just got chilly in here. <laughs> okay, this, this is such a great talk and I have some homework to do on the NDAA. So I'm gonna have to have you come back and we're gonna talk more about the NDAA and how that works and, and see if you know there's a way for Congress to really work through this and you know alter the language so it makes a little bit more sense. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Um, this is the the latest episode of the National Blast. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.